to introduce my wife to everyone, my bride of almost 44 years. Cindy, would you wave your hand up back there so everybody can see you back in the back? Uh, she likes to sit uh, in the back when I preach, just in case. <laughs> I noticed the first couple rows, they're almost empty in every church I go to, you know. You want to keep your distance uh, out there. Also, uh, I did bring a book table for, uh, when we're out for, with Friends of Israel. We try to do that. Uh, I have three books out there. That's all I had to bring. I've got to go get some more books uh, from the Friends of Israel. But I have my commentary on First and Second Thessalonians, which has those two books together, have four chapters, four major chapters on the end times. Uh, and then I uh, have a copy of a, a book written by my twin brother, Jimmy, who's in heaven. He died in 2018, uh, but he wrote a book on uh, conflict resolution called The Sons of Thunder. I wonder where he got that time. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, then I also have a book by Reynolds Showers, uh, who's also with the Lord, a great Bible teacher with the Friends of Israel for many years, and a Bible scholar teaching academically. Uh, and uh, his book out there is Maranatha. It's a book about the rapture of the church. So I'd encourage you to get those. Just, I made it easy, $10 a piece for everyone, so you wouldn't have to worry uh, how much each one was. And then I also have a music CD, uh, and that's uh, $10 as well. That was done in a studio in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I started a church when I was a seminary professor at Baptist Bible Seminary in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. That's in the Scranton area. Uh, and uh, we started in the low-income housing area of Scranton. Uh, we we're trying to reach uh, those folks. And we, we ran into the bus saw that a lot of them were functionally illiterate. That meant that they can't read. So what does that do to Bible study? Uh, that's hard, it makes it hard. And so what we did, we started to write some songs, and I wrote these songs uh, to get Bible doctrine in their heads with the music so they'd understand the music and then get the truth into them when they couldn't read yet. And of course, we were teaching them how to read the best that we could. So that's where these songs came from. Uh, and uh, this, these are not songs that I am going to just entertain you with. These are songs, uh, and this is a command. You're supposed to sing with me. Now, I expect about the third line for everybody to pick in and come on, okay? Uh, and there's two songs I'm going to teach you. We're going to do them both tonight. We'll do... Uh, both of them tomorrow, one in the first service and another one in the third service. Uh, the first song I call my ticked off song. Uh, it's uh, the Warrior Lamb. I was in my uh, seminary uh, office and I received a book from this cult group. And they said, we would like for you to take this book. It was an early church uh, father's book, The Shepherd of Hermas. And we would like you to put this in the Bible and take the book of Revelation out. And, and why? Because the book of Revelation is just too negative. We want something sweeter in the Bible. And so uh, I got mad. And I wrote this song. Uh, so it's my ticked off song. It's basically an exposition of Revelation chapter 19. The second coming of Jesus section there in that. So I think you'll pick that up a little bit. And uh, again, please sing with me. I don't want to be just hearing myself. That's not what this song is for, okay? Y'all ready? Yes. Okay. A lamb is so helpless It can't find its way Slaughtered for the sacrifice With its life it has to pay Jesus came the first time to be a victim and a lamb. So they all turned against him with their own hands. But when he comes again, he'll be a warrior in the clouds. He'll be riding on a white horse with a sword in his mouth. The warrior, king, and judge will be the awesome Lord of Lords. And the warrior lamb from the throne of God will rule forevermore. Good. 
people see Jesus as a sweet little lamb, whose love is the example for each and every man. That's all of him they want, they don't know what's in store, one day they'll be surprised when they hear the When he comes again, he'll be a warrior in the clouds. He'll be riding on a white horse with a sword in his mouth. The warrior, king, and judge will be the awesome Lord of Lords. And the warrior lamb from the throne of God will rule for heaven. When he comes again, he'll be a warrior in the clouds. He'll be riding on a white horse with a sword in his mouth. The warrior, king, and judge will be the awesome Lord of Lords. And the warrior lamb from the throne of God will rule forever. said? I mean, Jesus is coming back and he's coming as a judge. He's coming as a warrior. Um, and a lot of people don't get that. Yes, he is the sweet Jesus carrying the lamb on his shoulders who died on the cross for our sins. He is that. All of that. But he's more. And there's accountability in the end. And Jesus is coming to make all things right, and that includes judging. And so uh, I hope you uh, gather that in and uh, think about that as a message from the scriptures. Uh, the second song is, I call it the greatest promise. It's from my favorite passage in the Bible. I'm going to speak on that in the th th third service tomorrow morning. It's my favorite passage, so don't mess this up. Uh, my favorite verse is Revelation 21 4 the no more tears verse God will wipe away every tear from their eyes um, but this is really from verses 1 through 7 kind of an exposition of those verses uh, and we have so much going for us as Christians and we need to make sure and not let that slip by us uh, those of us who know the Lord uh, he has done so much for us, is doing so much for us, and is going to do so much for us. And so this song is about uh, the place where I wish God would hit the fast forward button and get us there. Uh, it's really about the end of, the, at the end of the millennium and the beginning of the new heavens and new earth. Uh, and uh, it's a very beautiful passage of scripture. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow they won't cry. There shall be no more pain, for all things have passed away. God will be their God. I heard him. He cried out from the throne, I make all things new, I'm Alpha and Omega, whose words are faithful and true, I will freely give life to him, who really first ever made there'll be no more hurt no more hurt 
no more tears will ever come my way again. No more broken hearts, God sent them all away. Oh, I wish that were today. The time for God's kingdom has not yet arrived. Till then I keep on serving Him with all of my life. But I still can't help but wonder while I look ahead about the greatest promise ever made. No more hurt, no more pain, no more tears will ever come my way again. No more broken hearts, God sent them all away. say that I wish God would hit the fast forward button and get us there, I really mean it. And I think all true believers feel that way. But we're given a, a place and a time to live and to accomplish God's purpose in our lives where we are as believers in Jesus. And if you're here without Christ, I hope you'll consider the claims of Jesus upon your life uh, as, as you think through uh, what his word tells us. This conference is about understanding God's heart. That title was picked out by the pastor. I think it's a, a very good title. He may have had some help. His wife may have picked it out for him. Um, let's see if this is working. We'll do it that way. Okay. Um, Tomorrow morning, I'm going to give three messages. God's heart for Israel. And Israel's in the news right now because of the war. It's, it's always in the news, even when there isn't war, but especially in the news because of war. And uh, God's heart for the church is my second message tomorrow. And then no more tears. God's heart for all of us, if we know him. And so we'll uh, go through that passage and make a presentation uh, of it. But... Why does God delay? Why doesn't he hit the fast forward button and get us there? I mean, the world we live in has so much trouble. You know, we can destroy the world by nuclear blasts. We have that capability. Back uh, before nuclear weapons, that was not possible. But we can, now, we know from the Bible, we're not going to destroy the earth. God's going to step in before we do and intervene. He will. But we can still do a lot of damage. Uh, and, but we also know, and COVID helped us, you know, um, we can destroy the world through chemical warfare and uh, bio warfare. 
all those kind of things. We have the capability to wipe out the, the planet. And you go, that really makes me want God to hit the fast forward button. Because we don't want to have another 2020, do you? The only thing good about 2020 was that Alabama won the national title, and I'm from Alabama, I'm a graduate. So that was the only good thing that year. Everything else was a bit bad. We struggled with that year. That's a nice little picture if you take out the uh, power lines. It's kind of a sweet little picture. Would you, would you take a guess where that is? Somebody said Hawaii? I mean, Southern California, okay, palm trees, yeah. Palm trees in Florida, Southern California, what? Hawaii. Okay, Israel, that's close. This is in Gaza. And this is 2005. Uh, there is an after picture that I couldn't find. I was trying to find it for you. I've seen it of this very spot. And this was before last October. It was just a few years after 2005, because it's in 2006 after the Israelis left Gaza, because they controlled Gaza then, they threw all the negotiations and everybody's making them negotiate, right? They left and the people in Gaza voted to make Hamas their government. And Hamas trashed this. Beautiful picture. You can go up to the fence at Gaza. And on one side of the fence, on the Israeli side of the fence, lush fields. On the other side, barren. And the Israelis said, we'll help you change that. So you can have the vegetation and grow carrots and all the different products, produce that you need. But they don't want it. They want a picture. Here's what the Israelis do to us. We live in that kind of a world. And then we have what really brought home to us, the October 7 massacre in Israel. And this is some of the damage in Israel. Sometimes I don't think we take seriously some of the details. See these piles of cars? These were cars that were burned out by Hamas. These are Israeli cars. There are three major depots of these cars that the Israelis have set up to process all of these things. And this particular place, this is a friend, an Israeli friend of the Friends of Israel, and he's at a particular place that was burned out. And this was a place where there were internationals, not Israelis, but internationals, foreigners who had come in to work in Israel to help out with certain projects in that area. And Hamas targeted them knowing that they were there. And I think they killed everyone except one. So go back and tell people what we do to people who come to Israel to help the Jews. Picture of uh, during a fact-finding mission that Friends of Israel had last month while they were there. This was a picture of rocket launch from Hamas toward Israel. We live in that kind of world. And all the bickering's going on, right? Aren't you tired of it? Yes. I mean, politically, I mean, I mean, it's like when you go to the doctor, you need 10 different appointments to get something settled. And you need 20 different opinions. I mean, everything seems to be in disarray. God's not going to leave us to our own wisdom and us get it right if we abandon him. We have tried to help in this, the midst of this. The, these are shelters. We have, Friends of Israel has probably uh, paid for through the donors who give to us generously. We've probably put in between 80 and 100 shelters over the last 10 years. They cost about $30,000 a piece. They're little concrete bunkers above ground that people can run to real quick when the sirens go off. And they're dotted all over Israel. 
And there's some that are bigger than that one, but that's the, probably the usual size. We also do things like purchase meta bikes, meta motorcycles uh, that the Israelis use to get to there faster before the ambulances can get there and to help. They're kind of like a paramedic thing. We live in that kind of world that requires those things. And uh, I don't know what Mr. Putin's going to do about Ukraine. I don't know what Hezbollah might do. They're going to attack in the north. I don't know. You don't know. The people who are going to attack don't know. God knows. We live in a world that is probably in my adult lifetime the most unstable it's ever been. And when I read the history books, it seems like we're back in the 1930s. Now, I'm not old enough to know that by experience. Lord, why don't you hit the fast forward button? Get us out of this place. There is so much beauty still here, isn't there? There's so much beauty to life. Your kids, your grandkids. There's so much that's lovable. But yet there's so much that's just drastically wrong. So I'd like you to take your Bibles uh, and turn to 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. We're going to go through this chapter together. Uh, and I, uh, if we have time at the end, we'll have questions. But I, I promise you that I'll, I'll, I'll get you back home by 2 tomorrow afternoon. Okay? <laughs> and I, as I present the prophecy studies that we're going to do, I want to avoid two extremes. One is wild predictions based upon current events. Everybody has a prediction, and they haven't been doing that just recently. If you've studied 2,000 years of church history, they've been doing it for 2,000 years. It's quite amazing uh, how willing people who say they follow Jesus are willing to take something that happens in, like, say, a meteor, an asteroid, Halley's Comet, this plague, that plague, the blood moons, on and on it goes, and we have our list of things, and we have our preachers in our day who uh, spend time on those things, and uh, they make wild predictions based upon what's going on. You know, some people ask me, when's the battle of Gog and Magog from Ezekiel 38 and 39 going to happen? And my answer is, when God says it happens. Because we don't have a whole lot of information in the Bible about that. And yet people get bent out of shape on that. We don't want to, you know, and they tie current events here and there. No, take a deep breath. We don't need wild predictions based upon current events. There's nothing that needs to happen, nothing for us to tie something to before the rapture of the church when God comes and gets us. But also, there's the other extreme. I've had uh, people who just, they're so upset about all of this wild prediction stuff. And they don't want to even talk about the second coming or anything about the end times. I think Pastor was alluding to some of that. But that's wrong too. I want to let you know, it's okay for you to get excited about the fact that Jesus might come, especially before my sermon's over. So let's be balanced. I guess a key word for the Christian life is balance. You know, history is going somewhere, and you say you're here, this is kind of like a, a road map of the mall. You're here, okay? And when you die, if you die before the rapture, okay, the rapture will come here, when Christ comes to take the church, to be with him. There's probably a gap of time there. And then there's seven years of tri called tri tribulation. Great horrible time of tribulation that's predicted not just in the New Testament, but the Old Testament. It's a major doctrine 
in Jeremiah and Isaiah. Um, and then there's the second coming at the end of that seven-year tribulation period. And then there's a thousand years, the, the term a thousand years. The Latin for that is millennium. Have you heard that? Okay, that's where millennium comes from, Latin for a thousand years. And, and by the way, that's not all there is to the kingdom. Jesus is going to set up that earthly thousand-year kingdom, that thousand-year reign. But it's just the kickoff party because it keeps going, the new heaven and the new earth. So that's the plan of history for our lives. And again, why does God delay? The Bible itself gives at least three reasons for that. But the passage begins with a general statement. It says, verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before. So he, God wants us to remember some things. Here's the, uh, the, the Peter writing. He says in verse 1 of the, of the book, he's writing to those who obtain like precious faith, to believers. So he's writing to the believers of his day. He's writing to us if we know him. He, and he wants us to remember some things, and in particular the things that were spoken before. The teachings of the prophets and the prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And where do we find those things? We find those things in the Bible, the written word of God. We don't find those things in the imagination that we can come up with in our heads. We find it in the scriptures. Then he moves to a specific statement. Pastor alluded to this, scoffers will come says, knowing this first. So you need to remember these things. He says, knowing this first. It's a, it's a, by saying first, he means this is important. Scoffers, mockers, will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Their question is, why does God delay? Now, he's making this as a prediction in the last days people will say this, and he may have already heard people saying that in his own day. He's about 30 years after Jesus left. But if I'd been one of the apostles, I might have complained, you know, Jesus leaves one day and he didn't come back the next day, and the next day and I'm going, where's Jesus? You know, I'd want him soon. So I can understand the heart of those who, who want that. But here, these are not people who know the Lord and love the Lord. These are mockers, scoffers. Why does God delay? And they give an argument. For, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So the argument is everything goes on as before. I mean, just think about our own individual window of our own lives. Everything kind of goes along, right? I mean, NCIS reruns are always there. Right? No amens on that? Maybe Perry Mason? Matlock? Whatever it is, Westerns, whatever it is that floats your boat. We have those things. American politics is in turmoil always. I seem to just float right along. Things continue as they always have. But you know, we know in our own lives that is not true. It's true for big periods of our lives. But there are always those major interruptions that happen in our lives. And our lives don't continue always 
like they had for many different reasons. For the loss of a loved one, for the birth of children, for marriage, for divorce, for any host of reasons in life, day-to-day things that we experience in life, there are intervening events that change everything. And so really, this is a wild statement. But Peter gives a, a statement on this from the Bible. says, you're wrong about this, and he's going to give his three reasons. And the first one is this. The earth is reserved for God's intervention in judgment. Look what he says in verses 5 to 7. For this they willingly forget. That is, though the mockers who say everything goes on like before, this they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. He starts there. You forget, guys, you mockers, you forget something. You scoffers, you forget that God once judged the entire world with a worldwide flood. We call it Noah's flood because it happened in the time of Noah. That's in Genesis 6 through 8. And those of us who are born again Christians who believe the Bible and if we're followers of Jesus, we have to believe the Bible because he taught us to believe the Bible. We take that at face value. It's not some minor flood that was localized somewhere. The Bible is clear. God doesn't stutter on this. It's a worldwide cataclysm. So he deals with the flood. How many of you have been out to the Ark Encounter out in Cincinnati area, okay? Uh, more of you need to get out there. You go see the Ark that they built. They built it to Bible um, specifications. Humongous. It's as big as, maybe bigger than, some aircraft carriers. It's huge. See, we've, what, what, what has the world done? The world has taught these little children's storybook things about the flood. they got the little giraffe with his head up in the rain above the boat, small little boat that looks like it would be snapped like, like a twig in a flood. That's not Noah's flood. And just seeing it one time will change your perception. I encourage you to go. Uh, so you have Noah's flood. And floods are very destructive. How many of you have ever been around a flood? Anybody? Okay, several of you. I mean, I've seen cars just being pushed down the river. You have to. Water is powerful. And it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And so God intervened once. And you say he won't do it again because things continue as they always have. Then in verse 7, related to this, when he says the earth is reserved for God's intervention and judgment, he's really saying, hey, there's no delay because God has a fixed time when this is going to happen and God's going to intervene and take care of it. And he's reserved it. Notice verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, talking about the promise of God, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. You remember the saying? If you grew up in church, you know this. One day God judged the world with a flood and he's coming back again to judge it by fire. That comes out of this passage. It's not something made up by preachers. It's a biblical doctrine. When I was uh, a young boy, I was not raised in church. 
but I was, I was raised uh, in Alabama. And of course, everybody down south, uh, even if they weren't churchgoers, knew the Bible stories. And somebody in my family had died. My twin brother Jimmy and I were about seven years old or so. And we really had not experienced death other than stepping on bugs and stuff. We didn't know anything about death because nobody had died in our family. And somebody died. And I remember on the carport of our little house in Eufaula, Alabama, my parents explained to my twin brother Jimmy and I what death was, the best they could to a seven-year-old. And then they said that God once destroyed the world with a flood, and he's coming back to destroy it by fire. Now, how do you think I responded? I started bawling. And that night, and I believe, as I look back, that was when God first seriously spoke to my heart about my relationship to him. And that night in bed, I pulled, I was scared to death. I think all day I was looking up for the fire to come down. And I, I pulled the covers over my head that night in bed and I made a prayer. I said, God, don't ever let me, Jimmy, Mom, or Dad ever die. My parents are still alive. My brother is not. He's alive. He's more alive than I am. But he's not with us. God didn't answer that prayer with a yes. But it shook me up, and it should shake all of us up. And that's the intention that uh, Peter gives us in this passage. God, through Peter, is trying to get our attention. This is a serious thing. There is no delay. God has appointed certain things to take place, and they are going to take place regardless. So there is a fire that is coming. We'll see a little bit about that perhaps uh, at the, later on in the end of the thing. Second argument that he gives is that God is not bound by time like you and me. God is not bound by time like you and me. Notice. He says, one day is as a thousand years with God, verse 8. So don't forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, you and I cannot relate to that by our experience. Can we? One day to us is what? One day. If it's a bad day, it might seem like a thousand years. But it isn't. It's not the same thing. The point of the passage is that God is, you know, he goes on to say he's not slack. So that is, God is not slow. The point is, God is timeless. God is not bound by time like you and me. Now, you have to remember that God is an infinite being. I mean, think about God. He's everywhere all the time. Can you do that? No, we can't do that. God's everywhere all the time. And all of him is everywhere all the time. It's not like part of him's in Mississippi and the rest of him's up here in Maryland. God is beyond, bigger than our imaginations can fathom. And Peter's reminding us that God is eternal, and that eternal doesn't mean that he just lives forever and never dies. It means that he is outside of time. So he's not slack, and so you, because of that, you can't count him as slow. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, that is the promise to come back, as some count slackness or slowness, but he is long-suffering toward us. So God is not bound by 
time. I am so glad that I have a God that is bigger than me. I like what one preacher said, I don't like to have a God that I could beat up. But so many of our portraits of Jesus, especially, are, you know, like he, he looks like he just came out of your beauty parlor and he wouldn't step on an ant. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the Jesus of the Bible at all. And so God is a big God. And here he's big with respect to time. And so to him, 2,000 years. It's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus left. We'll see that here. That's nothing for God. That's an eyelash of time. That's the twinkling of an eye for God. How long has it been since Jesus left and promised to come back? Well, if we take 2024, the current year, and subtract 32, we'll pick 32. There are some questions about what year Jesus uh, was crucified and all that, because the calendars changed a couple times after that. So that's 1,992 years, approximately. You can check my math. 1,992 years. Well, that's a long time to say I'm going to come back and he doesn't come back. But let's look at some other promises that God gave and how long it took for them to be fulfilled. We'll run through a few examples in the Bible. Would you like to do that? Okay, death of Ahaz. Ahaz, that wicked king, uh, his major, the major mistake he made in his life was he married the wrong girl. What was her name? Jezebel. Jezebel. And uh, Eli Elijah made the prediction that dogs are going to lick your blood because of his disobedience. But he was, a, a, is, he was a, an Israelite. He was a believer, I believe. It took three years for that promise to be fulfilled, but it happened when you track it out in the Bible. But then Jezebel herself, the prediction that was made of her by the prophet was not that dogs are going to lick your blood, but that dogs are going to eat you. It took about 20 years for that to happen, but it happened. I, you know, I wonder, I really wonder if after that prophecy, every time a dog barked that she jumped a little bit. I just wonder. The Babylonian invasion of Israel, Isaiah predicted it 120 years beforehand, and it happened. I could see somebody 20 years after he made it said, ah, you made a prophecy. It hadn't happened yet. Things go on like they always have. It happened. Then the first coming in Genesis 3.15, the first prediction of a Messiah who was going to come, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. 4,000 years before Jesus came, roughly. And then the coming of the Messiah, the first coming Daniel in the prophecies there from his time he was in the 6th century BC and it's 560 plus years before the details are brought to fruition. Then the prediction of the cross in Isaiah 53. It's over 700 years before that came to pass. Destruction of the temple in Matthew, 40 years. Jesus made the prediction, it was 40 years later, roughly, maybe 38. The restoration of Israel. God said, you can get kicked out of the land, Deuteronomy 28. They were kicked out by the Babylonians, and they were kicked out by the Romans. But God promises in Deuteronomy 28 to 32, he promises, you will come back. And in 1948, Israel's back. That's interesting. In 500 AD, if you were looking at your Google map, where's Israel? Doesn't exist. 1000 AD, Google map, no Israel. 1500, no Israel. 1948, Israel, I was born in 1953. So I have never lived a year of my life when Israel did not exist. Other Christians have had to do that. And by faith, they've had to trust the scriptures. But many have not had the faith to trust the scriptures on that. 
1878 years, and it came to pass. Israel's restored. Now, they're not restored in their full kingdom spiritual restoration. That's coming when Jesus comes. We'll talk about that a little bit tomorrow. There is a third reason that Peter gives of why he delays. God is patient so that many more are saved. Verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. That's patient toward us. And I think the us here is just a generic us for the world. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's heart, he says, I'm not willing that any should perish. That's his heart. I know I've run into some theologians who struggle with that. And my word to them is get over it. Don't struggle with it. Accept what the word says. God is not willing that any should perish. Now, we know that there are those who are going to perish. The Bible makes that clear. God knows that. But it's not his heart that they perish. It's something they choose. And so, perish, I think that's perdition or hell. It's, it's the elimination of any relationship with God whatsoever, any favored relationship with God is lost. And so he says, he would like all of them to do what? Come to repentance. What does that word mean? Well, let me explain some words to you that some people get confused. I don't have a PowerPoint for this, so you'll have to memorize this or write a song about it so you can remember it or uh, jot it down, slide in your notes. There's the word penance that's very popular in churches like the Roman Catholic Church. Penance means doing something good to make up for something you've done that's wrong. That's what the word penance means. And in some Catholic translations, they'll take the word repentance and call it penance in their Bibles. It's not the right word. It's not wrong sometimes to do good to make up for wrong, right? If you've stolen something from somebody, you need to make that right. Uh, but sometimes it takes on an eeriness about it. You know, okay, if you, uh, if you want to get forgiven, put 50 extra dollars in the offering plate. You know, it turns out something's like that. And that's not how anybody comes to salvation, doing good to make up for what you've done that's wrong. Another word is penitence. And penitence is uh, sorrow for sin. It's sorrow for you doing wrong. And it can be godly sorrow. It could be sorrow that not just you weren't just caught, but you really have a genuine sorrow about it. And the Bible says that godly uh, sorrow, penitence, can lead to repentance, but it itself is not repentance. So what is repentance? Repentance, that word means a change of mind about what? About God, about your sin. What does God require? See, here's where people really mess up. And we've got to be careful. Now I'm looking at all of you. How many of you have ever told a lie in your life? Okay. How many have ever stolen anything? You know, a little thing. You know, a toy soldier from somebody when you were a kid. How many have ever stolen anything? Okay. Pastor, I believe you have a congregation full of thieves and liars. <laughs> and how many times do you have to steal to be a thief? How many times do you have to lie to be a liar? See, we're guilty of everything. See, God's not going to ask the question that you stand before him. How many laws did you break? He's not going to ask that. He's going to ask, have you ever broken my law? That's the question. And the answer is, yes. 
See, God's demand is perfection. No sin. And I can tell just by looking at you folks, you don't have that. I don't have that. We don't have that. Humans don't have perfection and we can't muster it up on our own. That's why Jesus came to die. To satisfy the wrath of God upon sin on the cross. And now God says, if you'll change your mind about what I require and you admit that you're a sinner and trust my son Jesus as your savior, he'll forgive you. You'll be forgiven. So it's a change of mind, admitting your sin and trusting Christ. It's part of saving faith. You know, it's good to give up various bad habits in life, but repentance is a bigger thing than that. It's not just committing to give up cigarettes or alcohol or drugs or whatever it is. You know, pick the flavor of the month sin. And we have a lot to choose from these days. Repentance is far more than that. It's, it's, a, it's the big picture change. I'm a sinner. I've got problems. And I can't solve it on my own. And I have to turn and trust Christ as my only hope for heaven. The only way out. And when I trust him, he forgives me. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, and that verse tells us how we get it. We get it by believing. See, there are two kinds of people in the world who say they follow Christ. They say, there are those who say you get to heaven by doing, and then there are those who say you get to heaven by believing. See, and those who say you get to heaven by doing, which is probably the majority of people out there. They don't understand God's requirements. They think you're just doing more good than bad, you're in. But then why did Jesus have to die? For that, God could do that without Jesus. No, it's those who believe, and there's no such thing, listen to me, if you believe that you deserve to go to heaven, you're not going there. The only people who are in heaven are those who have admitted to God they don't deserve it and have cast themselves at his feet, begging his mercy through Jesus and his work on the cross. Those are the people who stand before God forgiven. There are no braggers in heaven. So God is patient. Now notice this. He's patient, long-suffering, the word in the Bible I was saved, I was forgiven, I put my trust in Christ, August 18th, 1974. And on August 18th of this year, I will speak in the church where I was saved on a Sunday morning, on the 50th anniversary, in the very room where I trusted Jesus. And I'll tell you a little bit in a second about that. But what if... Jesus had come back on August 17th. Where would I have been? We don't know. At some point in time, it gets cut off and there's no more hope. We don't know when that is. But I'm grateful that God waited to August 18th, 1974. I still want him to hit the fast forward button. Because now I'm in. But there are people we love who aren't. And our heart's prayer and, and our work should be toward to help to draw them to Christ by our life, by words and deeds and our prayers. On that day, August 18th, 1974, uh, actually earlier, a couple months before that, my brother and I my twin brother Jimmy and I, we went on a spiritual quest together. We had figured out, we thought the Bible was the word of God, a little fuzzy about things. Yeah, you know, we're not believers. I'd only been in church one time before I was 20 years old. That was when I was in the eighth grade. That was it. And so 
uh, in the summer, oh, I was 20 years old, in the summer, between my junior and senior year in college, uh, we started out on a trek to visit different kinds of churches. And we thought, well, the truth is somewhere there in Christianity. We know Billy Graham had an impact on us on TV. And so the best I can tell you is, we started looking for a church that sounded like Billy Graham. That's the way we would say it. Went to this one church, and the pastor got up and he said, uh, let's pray. And they did, all of them, out loud. All of them. And my twin brother Jimmy and I, we were standing next to each other as everybody around us was praying. And we looked at each other and we whispered to each other, this isn't Billy Graham. <laughs> we don't remember them doing that at Billy Graham Crusades. And so we visited different churches, and they also asked us to come forward in the church service. They had a come forward invitation, just like Billy Graham. Um, but it was pretty vague. And, and everybody was standing up here. Everybody, everybody came. Pastor says, I want everybody in here, right down here. So everybody was down here. said, put your hand on the guy in front of you. Well, you know, I didn't know nothing. I was never been in church hardly at all. So I put my hand on the guy in front of me, and the pastor they said a few words about commitment, and then he started praying for God's blessing upon these people. And I'm talking to God silently to myself. I'm saying, God, is this it? Have I done enough? I'm here to tell you, that's the wrong question. The question is not, have I done enough? The question is, has Jesus done enough? And the answer to that is, yes, he has. And you simply receive the free gift that he gives by trusting him. And if you've never trusted him, I beg you today to consider the claims upon, his, upon your life that he lays for you. He died for you almost 2,000 years ago. He died for me. He died for the world. God intervened in history through him. Let me encourage you to trust him as your savior. I did that in 1974 and I have never, ever regretted it. So what? Okay. Gives three reasons why God delays. But then he begins to talk about Okay, in light of all these things, especially that last part, of, or the part about fire, he begins to raise. Now, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now, there's that phrase, the day of the Lord. What is that? Well, let me do a little teaching here. The day of the Lord is not a technical term that means the same thing everywhere you find it in the Bible. There's a context for it. Sometimes the day of the Lord refers to the judgment events when Jesus comes back and puts his feet on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14. Other times it refers to a period of time like the tribulation period. That's called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. And I think it's the day of the Lord is that in 1 Thessalonians uh, five, and in Second Thessalonians two, and then other times, like in this passage, perhaps it refers to uh, the time at the end of the millennium, as we shift from the millennium to the eternal state. If you remember my diagram, we had the thousand years, and then we had the new heavens and the new earth, because it talks about notice how it words it, which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That's that he's coming back to the point about God's going to judge the world with fire. And it's pretty severe destruction language here. But I think it, I'm going to talk about this in the third message tomorrow. It's, I think it's a renovation of the earth, purification by fire. I don't, I don't think the earth is going to be annihilated. But we'll see uh, when we get there. Uh, but he raises that question in verses, verse 10, in light of the fact that there's going to be this massive judgment ahead, he asked the question in verse 11, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? 
what kind of people ought you to be? Now, who's he talking to? Believers. So if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus, that question is being asked of you. What kind of people ought you to be? And he gives a couple of responses. First, you should look forward to the time God makes all things right. In verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what's he saying? He's saying what I said earlier. Pray that God hits the fast forward button. Look forward to it. Want it. Desire it. Desire for God to make all things right. But I've heard... Christians say, well, I haven't experienced enough in this life yet, though. I don't want him to come back. That's not the right attitude. I understand it sometimes. But it's not the right attitude. We should long for Jesus to return. Uh, and there's some things there we don't have time to get looking for in hastening the coming. How can we hasten the coming of the day of the Lord? I think by spreading the gospel, praying for people to come to the Lord, even praying for the Lord to come back. One of the prayers I pray often, Revelation 22, 20, the end of the Bible. Even so, come Lord Jesus. You ever pray that prayer? You're here. Remember this? Pray for this to get down the track to where we're going. There's a second one. You should live holy and godly lives in the here and now in light of tomorrow. See, this is not just pie in the sky. See, God's de delaying. And during the delay, you and I have to live our lives. And how should we live them? We need to live now in light of tomorrow. This godly life, we need to live in light of tomorrow. Therefore, it says, therefore, since all these things will be, so therefore, in light of this future stuff, we need to live now, doing these things now. Come down to verse 14 to 18. Look at 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. Looking ahead, we see these things, and therefore, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Live godly lives in light of what's coming. And consider the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And then he talks about Paul's writings. And then verse 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, you know what's coming, because I told you. Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A lot of people say, even Christians, I hear it, you don't want to talk about the future because the future is just pie in the sky. It has nothing to do with the present. Do you buy that? No. We live in light of what is to come. If you go back to 1 Peter, and I'll finish with this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he telling us to do? He's telling us to focus on what God is going to bring us when Jesus comes back. Yeah, we are to look back to the cross. We're looking at what God's doing now in our lives, but we're also to live this life in the shadow of the cross, but also the shadow of what's to come. And we are to grab it, rest our hope fully upon that. And so let me encourage you, no wild predictions, but at the same time, still get excited because there is coming a day when God will hit the fast forward button. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your written word. I pray that these words in scripture will speak to hearts. I pray through the Holy Spirit that you would prick the hearts of those who need you the most.
And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.